Welcome to She Persisted. I'm your host, Sadie Sutton. Every Friday, I post interviews about mental health, dialectical behavioral therapy, and teenage life. These episodes break down my mental health journey, teach skills to help you cope with life, and showcase testimonials from individuals, including teens just like you. Whether you've struggled yourself or just want to improve your mental fitness, this podcast is your inspiration to live a life you love and keep persisting. This week's DBT skill is mindfulness of current thoughts. For me, when I'm experiencing anxiety, a lot of it is in my head and that my thoughts are racing, I'm feeling really overwhelmed, I'm struggling to logically think through how I want to navigate the situation and check the facts, all of those things. So this skill is exactly what you use when you're having that like thought spiral overwhelmed experience. So the first step is to observe your thoughts. So you're really thinking of them as waves. They're coming, they're going, they're not constant. You're not suppressing or judging your thoughts, but you are acknowledging their presence, but you're also not keeping them around. You're not ruminating on them. You are also not analyzing this. You are practicing willingness and you are stepping back and observing your thoughts as they go in and out of your mind. The next step is to adopt a curious mind. So you're asking, where do my thoughts come from? What's the trigger? Really just get curious. Notice every thought that goes in and goes out. I know that's kind of hard because at least for me, my mind goes like 37 million miles an hour and I'm like, I don't even know what I just thought. But when you can get curious, try and trace it back to the initial trigger and observe, but don't evaluate your thoughts. You're not attaching judgments. You're really just exploring them as they are. The third step is to remember that you're not your thoughts. You don't necessarily need to act on them. There's times when you've had really different thoughts than you are right now, which can be a really reassuring thing to remind yourself of. You can also note that what you're feeling right now, the catastrophe thinking is emotion mind. It's not your, your logical, wise self. And lastly, we are not blocking or suppressing thoughts. I know for me, whenever I try to avoid something, it comes back bigger and not better, more overwhelming. So ask yourself, what sensations are these thoughts trying to avoid? Try to turn your mind to that and then go back to the thought and kind of go back and forth in that. Step back and allow your thoughts to come and go as you observe your breath, grounding yourself, and try practicing some loving compassion towards your thoughts. So that is the mindfulness of current thoughts skill. It's great when you're feeling mentally overwhelmed and you're having the urge to suppress thoughts, but you really want to cope through it. Hello, hello, and welcome back to She Persisted. I'm so excited you're here today. We have an amazing episode. I'm really proud of this one. It's one of those episodes where when I think about what I wish I would have heard or been aware of when I was struggling with depression and anxiety, this is one of those conversations. And it's just, it's so powerful. Our guest is Tara Bixby. She is a therapist, anxiety coach, and the host of the Courageously You podcast, and we really just dive deep on anxiety. So we talk everything from causes to triggers to her advice to somatic experiencing as a a treatment for anxiety. We talk about the misconceptions that are at play, truly healing and what she's seen in practice with teens and adolescents versus working in the prison system and seeing adults struggling with mental health challenges. So it's just such a holistic, well-rounded, insightful approach to talking about anxiety and I I know you're going to find this conversation valuable. So before we so before we dive in, if you haven't already, be sure to leave a review for She Persisted on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're listening. At the time of this recording, we are at 93 reviews on Apple Podcasts, which is insane. I remember the days when I was leaving <laughs> reviews for myself from my phone, my computer, my friends' phones, my parents' phones to get to like five reviews. But insanity, there might be a really fun giveaway at 100 reviews. I don't know. That's just the the rumor going around. 
but if you haven't left a review, it would mean so much to me. I love hearing your guys' feedback and opinions on the episodes and when they helped, when they didn't, what you're liking, what you're not, all of the information so that this podcast can really just be a resource for you. So, with that being said, we are going to dive into this amazing conversation. Thank you so much for joining me on She Persisted today. I am so excited to have you on the show. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So I wanted to start by hearing your journey, your story, and what brought you to being an anxiety coach, working with clients to to navigate anxiety and kind of the foundation there. Yeah, I don't have like this awesome story of how like I woke up one day and I knew what I wanted to be when I grow up. <laughs> Who does? Mine was very few yeah, people. right? <laughs> Mine was more like I just kind of took opportunities and then a new one would pop up and I'm like, Hey, why not? And so I did that multiple times and then I got to where I am today. So I actually started out as a cosmetologist after I graduated high school, I was doing hair and I just like, there's something about when you go get your hair done and then it's like a safe space to just talk to somebody and people were starting to unload like their stressors. And one lady told me that she had been raped and I'm like, oh my goodness, right. I'm like, oof, this is really heavy. And so I decided, you know, I think I'm going to go back to school and I navigated some majors for a little while and I finally settled on psychology and then we were getting ready to graduate and I was like, what am I going to do now? (laughs) Like, I had no plan and one of my friends is like, well, I'm going to go get my master's in counseling and I was like, eh, I think I can do that, you know, like, (laughs) no, like, I don't even know what I was thinking and so I applied and I got into the master's program and I became a clinical counselor and then I Well, through that process, somebody had reached out to me and was like, you know, the prison is hiring for a psych tech in their acute mental health unit. You should apply for it. And I did because I just seem to do like whatever pops up. Mm -hmm. And I did that. And then when I graduated, I stayed on as a clinician and then I just navigated through the prison system. And then an opportunity popped up for me to go work at a state hospital with adolescents. And I was just like, eh sounds cool. I'll go do it. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. I just kind of do things, but I guess going back to the anxiety coaching, when I was in grad school, I really, really struggled and I felt really, really alone. And I would go to social media to kind of put it out there for people. And I felt like it landed flat. Like nobody was comfortable with struggle. And so I would delete it and I would feel shameful for it. And I finally decided like enough is enough. I need to create a space for women where they can, you know, feel seen where they're not struggling alone in silence. And then as I created Courageously You on the side, I did that for a while. And then in my professional career, I started to specialize in anxiety. And so I kind of merged the two, but because I'm a licensed therapist, I can't practice outside of Idaho. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I went in to coaching. Long story short. Gotcha. I would love to hear, obviously you've worked with, I'm sure, some very interesting patients, super interesting cases. Are there common threads that you see with patients in the acute prison system, child um, mental hospitals, and then everyday patients that you see that are struggling with anxiety? Like, are there common themes there? You know, it's really interesting because there's, there's, two populations, the way I view it is there's people who maybe aren't struggling with acute mental health. It's more people who are just struggling with everyday worries Mm -hmm. and it's starting to impact their mental health and they're starting to feel anxious. 
But then I see a very large population and I've, I'm seeing it now with kiddos in the inpatient psych hospital. And I've seen it in the prison system where you have trauma. And I'm not talking just like capital T trauma. I'm talking about, you know, abandonment, neglect, not having a safe space, a safe home, a caregiver that you could depend on, different types of abuse. And I'm seeing how there is a connection because a lot of kids get lost in the system or they don't get help at all. And then when they get older, they get lost in the system. So I do see a big connection and sometimes I think, you know, like maybe medication is playing a role in this, like what, where are we going wrong kind of a thing? So I don't know if that answers your question, but I do see a connection with the kiddos I work with and the people I see in the prison system. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, What are the most common things that kids are coming into the hospital struggling with? I know when I was hospitalized, I was hospitalized four times during my eighth grade and freshman year of high school. And it was for depression, it was for self-harm, it was for suicidal ideation. But really like the base there was depression. Is that the most common thing or are there other things kids are struggling with a lot these days? Yeah, pretty much I would say the most presenting problem that I am seeing is depression and suicidal ideations and self-harming behaviors. Mm -hmm. What is your advice? It'll be like a two-part question for, for teens and then for parents that are struggling with depression and suicidality on such a big scale? So, you know, it's tough with teens. I'm learning. I've only worked with adolescents for six months. Prior to that, I worked with Mm -hmm. adults and I'm learning that teenagers are a different population to work with. And so I feel with kiddos, I just don't think that they can see the future. They're very in this moment, very concrete thinking. And so for kids, I, it's more, I just want to establish hope for them and they're navigating bullying and social media. And then I know for the kids I work with a lot of them, I shouldn't say that there is a large majority of them that don't have that stable home. Some have very supportive parents, but it's, it's, you can't take a kid out of the environment, try to fix the kid and put them back in that environment. And so kiddos just need to learn how to self-regulate, how to use distress tolerance skills. I'm a huge fan of somatic experiencing. How can we discharge that stored stress in your body? How can you develop healthy coping skills? Trying to find a reason to live. And then with adults, my biggest advice to adults is recognizing all the factors that can impact mental health. I think we live in a system that believes it's just a chemical imbalance and that if if parents can start being mindful of okay is my kid getting sleep at night or are they staying up on their phone all night is my kid engaging in enough movement you know what are they eating are they eating captain crunch for breakfast are we feeding them you know foods that support their gut health because a lot of people think depression is chemicals in the brain but the reality is is 95 percent of your serotonin is made in your gut so if your gut health is off, you you might struggle with depression. So just being mindful that, you know, medications can help, but there's so many more factors at play that you could, you could encourage your kiddo to engage in. Mm-hmm. This week's sponsor is Teen Counseling. You guys know that we could not have a therapist on the podcast without mentioning Teen Counseling. Teen Counseling is an online therapy program with over 14,000 licensed therapists in their network. If you've ever heard of BetterHelp, Teen Counseling is their teen brand. 
So if you are looking to try therapy for the first time or switch things up with your therapist, this is a great way to start. They offer support on things like depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, and so much more. They offer services via talk, text, and video counseling. So you can really cater it to meet your needs, whether you just want someone to give advice and and support and coping recommendations in a tough moment, or you want to have an audio call, or you feel comfortable doing a video call in normal sessions, whatever you need, they can support you. So what you're going to do is you're going to go to teencounseling.com slash she persisted. You are going to take a quick survey about what you're hoping to work on in therapy. And this is so that they can match you with a therapist that best meets your needs. From there, you go ahead and put in a parent or guardian's email. And this is so that they can give consent to treatment. They, none of your information is disclosed. Your privacy is protected as it should be in any therapy relationship. Um, and so your parent gets a super discreet email. I, I send it to myself. Don't worry. And it says, Sadie, or whatever your name is, is hoping to work with a therapist at teen counseling. Click here to learn more, give consent for treatment, and provide payment. So what you're going to do is you're going to go to teencounseling.com slash you persisted and find a therapist that meets your needs today. Again, that is teencounseling.com slash you persisted. So shifting gears a bit to anxiety, what are the most common causes or is there a cause or is it just something that some people struggle with and some people don't? I think we are overcomplicating anxiety, honestly. I think we're having as a- anxiety about the anxiety. <laughs> right. I'm like, this has become like the new catchphrase is anxiety. Mm-hmm. But the way I view anxiety, and if you talk to helping professionals, we're all gonna have different views on anxiety. But this is something that I've recognized from my own life and what I've seen with my clients and patients is that I believe there's three pathways that can ignite anxiety. The first pathway is triggers in your environment. So something like a sight, sound, smell, feeling, taste, whatever can trigger an emotional memory that's been stored in your amygdala. So that's one way. Another way that I think anxiety can be ignited is by our thoughts. You know, what are we telling ourselves? What are we worrying about? What are we thinking? Because your thoughts can activate, they can essentially scare your amygdala into activating your anxiety. And then the third way is gut health is internal stressors, because if something's going on inside your body, you know, you, your amygdala and vagus nerve, they're, they're communicating with each other. And if your amygdala perceives a threat inside your body, it's going to activate your stress response. So those are the three ways that I feel anxiety can be activated. Are there certain things that it feels like everyone has anxiety about, or is it very subjective? I think right now I I think people think what is igniting their anxiety is their worries we live in a very stressful world right now and I think people perceive that their anxiety is a result of their their thoughts but I I always encourage people to get curious like when you feel anxious just sit with it you know what what is igniting it is it your thoughts is it something in your environment you know, is your blood sugar low? And I think if people really sat with their anxiety, they'd be surprised that it's not their thoughts that ignited it. It's that they had a physical sensation and then they put a thought to that sensation. Mm-hmm. So if someone comes to you and is like, I feel anxious all the time, I don't know what to do. What are your first steps that you you guide them through? Are Are there certain coping skills that are your favorite to suggest? Is there a thought pattern to rewire? What's your advice? 
I personally like to sit with people and get curious. So I do anxiety coaching and I have them do a big assessment when they first come in. And I try to identify what is igniting their anxiety, you know, and then I can, I can be more specific with that. But I think if somebody's listening to this and they're struggling with anxiety, I have a couple things. I would, I would definitely encourage movement. If you can get your heart rate up for 30 minutes, a few times a week, when you get your heart rate up and you're moving, your amygdala thinks that you're escaping danger. And so it thinks, okay, you know, they've escaped that danger. I no longer need to be activated and it'll close that anxiety loop for you. Mm -hmm. So that's one, one thing I encourage, but I want people to really understand also with movement is that when your anxiety activates, it activates your nervous system, your sympathetic nervous system and energy is mobilized within you. And if you don't burn off all that energy that was mobilized, it becomes stored in your body. So that's also like a really good reason to move your body when feeling anxious. The other thing I would encourage people to do is prioritize sleep. Like, are you getting good sleep quality? And I'm not saying, oh, I sleep eight hours. Are you sleeping good? Because when you don't sleep good, it pisses off your amygdala and therefore you feel anxious the next day. Yeah. The other thing I would encourage probably is just grounding. Like really ground in your body, send your amygdala signal of safety, let it know that you're safe. Because if you're able to calm your nervous system, whether you go for a walk in nature or you know you, you sit on the couch and you sip your coffee in the morning, whatever you can do to just really ground yourself in your environment, in your body, it's going to send that signal of safety and your amygdala is going to think you're okay. And therefore it's going to basically stop activating. What are some of the most common misconceptions that either like the general public or clients that you work with have about experiencing anxiety? I think people, when they feel anxious, they think it's a message that's saying like shit's getting real, you know, like things are going to get real bad. Something's going to fall apart in my world. Somebody's going to die. I'm going to die. They think it means something bad. And it's funny you ask this because even just today I was thinking about it. Like I wish people would think of anxiety as stress activation. You know, yeah. when you feel anxious, just be like, oh, my nervous system's activated again. You know, reshift that focus to just being your nervous system because a lot of people fear anxiety because they don't know what anxiety is. So I would just encourage people to know about anxiety, know about your nervous system, and to know that those physical sensations, while they're terrible and horrible and nobody likes them, that it's just your nervous system activating, but you have the power to like retrain your nervous system to not be so responsive. Mm -hmm. What are your favorite coping skills to recommend for anxiety or panic attacks? With panic attacks, you know, a lot of people try to fight the panic attack. If you're having a panic attack, just ride through the wave of it. You know, imagine you're a buoy in the water and you're just kind of bobbing with the sensations that are coming over you because fighting it is only going to pour fuel on that fire. And a lot of people are like, I can't sit still when I'm having a panic attack. I'm panicking. But if you can just like, I always say before you have the panic attack, rewire that circuitry in your brain that says, you know, a panic attack is not going to kill me. I am going to be fine. So that when it does happen, you're more able to ride that wave. So that's what I would say about panic attacks. And the other thing is with a panic attack, don't lay down. 
if you are having a <laughs> if you're having a panic attack, just try to walk around. Because like I said, your amygdala thinks you're because fight, flight, freeze. Mm-hmm. It thinks that you're running away from whatever is dangerous, even if there's no danger present. So I wouldn't sit still if having a panic attack. When it comes to anxiety, I honestly think my favorite tool, because I used to struggle really bad with anxiety and panic attacks. And what I found the most helpful for me was just grounding, you know, just really getting into my body and and just being like, okay, what is going on? Why am I feeling anxious? What just happened in my environment? Have I eaten? Just really getting curious because once you are aware, you're going to recognize a pattern of like, okay, this is what's always igniting my anxiety. And then you are better able to maybe minimize the likelihood of that activation in the future. Mm-hmm. What would your advice be to someone who is currently struggling with anxiety? If somebody is struggling with anxiety, I would encourage them to do a few things. It's it's not a one size fits all. So that's why it's always tricky. And mm-hmm. I always encourage many different changes. But if you're a caffeine drinker, that's my first one. You know, like, do you drink a lot of caffeine? If you are drinking a lot of caffeine, try to start cutting back and see if that makes an, if that helps or makes an improvement prioritize your sleep. I don't know. Like it's so tricky because this is where I think we're going wrong with anxiety is that, you know, you have people that teach CBT and you have people that teach DBT and then you have people that are very trauma focused and, Mm -hmm. you know, those modalities might not be helping that person. So I would start by just checking out your lifestyle. You know, what's your diet and lifestyle look like? Let's start there. Let's get in nature, you know, let's expose ourselves to sunshine. Let's go for walks. Let's ground. Let's do movement practices and then really going inward. And once you know what is anxiety or what is activating your anxiety, if it's your thoughts, okay, cool. Go focus on CBT a little bit. If it is trauma, because a lot of people have not made the connection that trauma is, you know, it's causing dysregulation in your body and it's igniting anxiety because of triggers in your environment. So then once you get to that, you know, let's, let's do a somatic experiencing, let's get in your body, discharge the stored stress. So I know that's probably not answering the question because it's just so complex. And I want people to know that because they get so discouraged when they go somewhere and they're like, why is this not helping me? And it's probably because you're treating a pathway of anxiety. That's not the pathway that's igniting your anxiety. That's so interesting. And I think it's it's completely true. And we were in my psych class a couple of weeks ago, and she was talking about how the data shows that the most like long-term success and recovery comes from patients that have t- worked with like six different therapists. And anyone that hears it at the beginning is like, is this a joke? <laughs> like six different therapists, but it's kind of connects to that idea of like what works for you what the modality that works for someone else might not be what helps treat treat your emotions and thoughts and feelings and so I I completely agree there I would love to dive into somatic experiencing and for listeners who haven't heard that term before or haven't done that what is it is it something that you can implement independently do you work with a therapist on it kind of walk me through that Yeah. So somatic experiencing is a really a focus and I'm just starting the the three-year program. So I'm just starting the three-year program, but, um, oh my gosh, her name is totally escaping my memory right now. (laughs) (laughs) 
but the book widen the window if okay. anybody wants to learn about just like the role the body plays in it and energy read wide in the window and then peter levine has a ton of really good work on somatic experiencing as well and he's actually the program that i am starting but pretty much what the goal is is this is i'm going to try to like minimize this yes. large <laughs> theory into a really small mm-hmm. clip but when your amygdala which is your fight flight freeze your spirit your fear response when it perceives that you are in danger it activates your nervous system. It activates your sympathetic nervous system. You have all the hormones that come in to prepare you to either fight the danger, flee the danger, or freeze. And so what happens is if people aren't completing that whole entire you know, discharge loop, if they're not discharging all the energy that was mobilized, it's becoming stored in their body. And so just like I always imagine a cup. Let's say every time your stress activation activates, it fills up your cup a little bit more. And if you're not discharging it, eventually that cup is going to fill up. And again, you're going to be right there at the rim where if one more stress activation happens, you're going to overflow. And so that's what's happening. And when you have that overflow, that's when you start to have symptoms. That's when the presentation of mental health symptoms come into play. And people don't recognize the, the dysregulation between the mind-body system is because they're not discharging all that energy after stress activation. I mean, think about how often your stress activates. Like the other day I thought all I was going to, right? The other mm-hmm. day I thought I was going to spill my water and I like jumped to catch my water. That was stress activation. So I don't, I feel like it's, it's so complex to explain, but I just want people to recognize that all that energy that's mobilized it's being mobilized like back in the day it used to be for like cavemen and you like when a saber-toothed tiger was going to come and get you but now it's being activated every day because our amygdalas our nervous system has not caught up with the modern world and so it's easily activated Mm -hmm. I don't know if I I feel like I went on like a kind of a tangent but I hope no I I love that that's it's so interesting and I think you explained it so well and it's definitely something that I've heard a couple of guests mention here and there and so it's really helpful to have that explanation I think it's something that so many people can relate to because again we are stressed constantly I mean Mm -hmm. you look at the news this week and like every single time you open your phone you're like oh my god like that stress is activated so it's it's very important to remember to take that time to to recharge, to be able to like decrease your baseline so that you can withstand whatever challenges you continue to face. Today's sponsor is Sakara. Sakara is a nutrition company focusing on overall wellness, starting with what you eat. They have amazing plant-based, gluten-free, vegan, I guess that's the same thing as plant-based, meal plans that are delivered ready to eat to your door. And a lot of people don't know this, but you can either just do breakfast, you could just do lunch, you could just do dinners, or you could do all of them. So if you are someone that really struggles to get a healthy luncheon, order a Sakara just for lunch and you'll have an amazing salad or bowl ready to go every day. Same thing for breakfast breakfast and dinner. Sakara is a celebrity favorite. Chrissy Teigen and Gwyneth Paltrow both are huge fans. I'm sure you've seen it on Instagram, YouTube, all of the things, but they have such amazing wellness essentials as well. My two favorites are the sleep tea and the beauty chocolates. The sleep tea has chamomile and other herbs um, that help you just wind down. It's a great 
thing to add into your night routine and the beauty chocolates have collagen and nootropics in them to help you get glowing firm all of the amazing things skin and it literally tastes like chocolate so who doesn't want to add that to their routine so if you want to check out sakara you can go to sakara.com or use the link in today's show notes and use code xosady at checkout for 20 percent off your first order again that is code xosady at checkout for 20 percent off your first order one of the most common questions that i get asked is what the difference is between having anxiety like a diagnosis versus feeling anxiety. And whenever I'm asked this, I'm like, they're the same thing. Like, (laughs) obviously, the DSM will give you certain criteria that qualify you for a diagnosis and your insurance will cover treatment and blah, blah, blah. But the coping skills that work for someone that's feeling anxiety versus having the diagnosis are the same. So that's how I kind of like to explain it. But I would Mm -hmm. love to hear your perspective on that. So I'm probably the worst person to ask because I hate (laughs) the DSM and I hate diagnosing people. There's honestly... Well, there, I mean, this is tricky. So at the end of the day, there's really no difference. Anxiety is anxiety, no matter what the DSM tells you. Yeah. When it, when it comes to a diagnosis of like generalized anxiety disorder, they are looking at a set criteria and they're seeing, okay, does this person meet this criteria? And usually one of the things that I think differentiates it is, you know, you can have stress activation and feel anxiety for a minute but you're able to cope and ride through it and then you're fine. But then there's some people when, you know, it's like their amygdala has, it's, it doesn't have a foot, but you know, Mm -hmm. like it's foot is on the gas pedal. And so your stress is just going all day long and it's starting to impair your ability to function. It's starting to be a problem for you. It's, you know, you're not sleeping, you're not eating, whatever. You're becoming irritable, agitated. That's when they're going to move you into a diagnosis is, you know, okay, this has been going on for this amount of time. It's starting to impair your ability to function. But at the end of the day, all it is, is a quote unquote label for insurance companies so that they can bill you. A diagnosis means nothing at the end of the day. Like anxiety is on a spectrum. And if you get diagnosed, that just means you're at the other end of the spectrum, but it doesn't mean you can't get back to the other end. Mm Mm-hmm. No, I I completely agree with you. It's so interesting because I feel like the context that it most often gets brought up in and the most, I hear it most frequently when people are like asking me about my experiences and they're like, okay, well, like I have felt anxiety, but obviously I don't have anxiety like you did. And it's almost like a thought barrier to like feeling like you can ask for help and you Mm -hmm. can get curious about how you can feel better because you're like, well, it's not bad enough. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting because like, even if you're not in therapy, like you can still look for coping skills and research and educate yourself. And whether or not you have the DSM criteria is going to make no difference in that. And yes, it's kind of like one of those things that we, we kind of hold ourselves to for no reason. And so I completely agree with you that it's a very stupid way of qualifying the, the symptoms you're experiencing. And there are so many reasons that the DSM is helpful because insurance will pay for things and there, there's more research that can be done on these different disorders. But in other ways, it's really hurting people, which is really unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. I, I struggle with diagnosing and I've seen it. And the reason I struggle with it so much is because like I worked in the prison system and I'm working with kids right now. And these yeah. when both populations come into me and I sit down to do their psychosocial which is a psychosocial assessment, your mind would be blown if you saw the laundry list of diagnoses these people have. 
And what's even sadder is when kids have this many diagnoses. And so I started to see this theme and the more I did research on it, I'm just like, what, <laughs> why are we diagnosing people? Because like they may present one way today and then they won't present that way in the future, but that diagnosis is stuck with them. Like it's, yeah. it's sticking to their paper trail as they move along. And so with the anxiety, I think I, I hope for a world where you can seek mental health treatment and not need diagnosed, but still get the help that you need. And you made the comment about, well, maybe my anxiety is not as bad as your anxiety. I want everybody that's listening to this. I don't care if you're anxious or not. I want everybody to use the tools because the more you strengthen that within yourself, if you do feel anxious in the future, it's more likely to be easier to reduce your anxiety because you've already strengthened that skill. Your body's like, oh, I know what I'm doing. It's a muscle. And it, yeah, yeah it jumps in. Totally, totally. It makes me think of the this, I don't even know if you could really call it a study. We read about it in my psychology class. It was decades ago where this, I'm pretty sure he was a doctor, but I don't want to, I don't want to say for sure. <laughs> but he had these actors go into a psych hospital and this was like in the 50s or 60s like this is when it was an asylum and they presented I'm using quotes with schizophrenia symptoms and then they were diagnosed they did treatment for a bit and then they recovered themselves because they were using the different criteria that qualified them for a diagnosis and they were all discharged and this was at a point where people when you were admitted to a hospital, it was like a lifetime thing. It wasn't like you were there for a week and then you went home. This, If you went into an asylum, you were there forever. And they were discharged with recovered schizophrenia, which really isn't a thing. You can, of course, manage symptoms. You can, in the in the long run, really be able to live very effectively and cope well. But not, not many doctors now would use the term recovered schizophrenia. And so it really illustrated what the... What, how concerning it can be to over-pathologize people. And so I'd love to hear your perspective on that because you've worked with such di different demographics and populations, and especially kids, where those labels are getting tagged on so early in life before they've even fully developed. Mm -hmm. So what do you think happens when we're pathologizing every single behavior and action and thought and emotion? Well, I'm going to start with kiddos because, I mean, they're younger in age, so you can you have a better chance of helping them. What I am finding, and I, I need to do a disclaimer, when I started doing mental health work, I absolutely believed in the mental health model and the, in the chemical imbalance theory and that mm -hmm. medications were the answer. And I pushed meds and I would tell people like, you know, if you want a uh, life worth living, a quality of life, like you got to be med compliant. And I started to do research and I'm not going to dive into it, but like I learned about Kelly Brogan and Robert Whitaker and Matt in America and Ellen Vora. And I started to learn like, you know, people can heal, like people yeah. can actually heal their symptoms and that, you know, medications could be causing more harm than good. And so with this new awareness that I have, and I work with kids, I have to be honest with you, I get really mad a lot and I stress out a lot because these kiddos are being given a diagnosis mm. and because they're so young they don't recognize like they can't separate themselves from this diagnosis so oh, they're like I, I that. Yeah, yeah I am bipolar I am schizophrenic I am depressed and so it's like no at the end of the day, these kids are presenting with symptoms that match a DSM criteria that has no validity. Mm -hmm. So 
I get frustrated because these kids already have so many diagnoses and they're being pushed medications. And, you know, when they're starting to have like escalated behavior, or maybe they're starting to present, like they might have a panic attack. People are running to them saying, here, take this PRN. And my whole caseload knows like, nope, Tara's going to get mad. If I take a PRN, I got to use mm-hmm. my skills first. And so I just get mad that, and, and it's so hard for me to like articulate what I'm thinking, but I think of these little kiddos and I'm like, God, like if we could just, you know, feed them foods that support their gut health. And what if we could help them discharge all that stored trauma in their bodies so that, you know, they would return to their baseline and they wouldn't have that mind-body dysregulation. And what would it look like if we prioritized movement and sleep and we kind of reduced all the medications they were on? So I struggle because my fear is that we don't have a system that supports that. We don't have a system that supports healing. I was actually recently told that I'm going to become pretty much a case manager. Oh. <laughs> like that. Yeah, because that that's what hospitals are turning into and I'm struggling with this because I don't want to just give these kids a diagnosis and a bandage of medication because I fear they're going to become the kids they'll grow up to be the adults I worked with in the prison. Because when I worked in the prison, I asked them all the time. I said, what did you need that you didn't get? And all of them said, I I wish somebody would have intervened when I was younger. And so that's my fear. I don't, I don't know if I'm answering the question, but my fear is just that, you know, they get these diagnoses. It becomes their identity. They think they can't heal. They grow up and they end up incarcerated or in uh, psych hospitals and they still have that belief of a diagnosis. Therefore I am, I need these medications to live. And I, it literally crushes my heart. Yeah. No, it makes like, it really, again, connects to like how we approach physical versus mental health. We think of like COVID. If you're, you test positive for COVID for five days, you're not like, oh, I am COVID for years. Mm-hmm. Like, that's just not how we approach it. And even things like after COVID or post COVID, whatever the term is for when you have those long-term effects and the brain fog, like you wouldn't refer to yourself as, as being a COVID patient for that mm-hmm. long period of time. And yet when you're presenting with symptoms of depression or anxiety, it becomes your identity. And it becomes, yeah. some, becomes something that maybe you can't change, which isn't necessarily the case. And yes, it's difficult and you, you need to educate yourself and push yourself and try all these different things before you find what works. But it's not once you get a diagnosis that, 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 that that's the end point. That's not the, the end of the road. And so I think that I completely agree with you. I would love to hear what your, your favorite resources are, whether it's books or podcasts or different, different treatment approaches. What are, what are your favorite recommendations? I am forever going down a rabbit hole. Like it's probably a problem. So <laughs> I, I like, I can't stop learning, but obviously like I have the Courageously You podcast and I invite tons of guests in the mental health space. So that's a huge resource for me also because yeah. they're essentially educating me. So that's one of them. I love books. And if I had to pick, I'm going to try to like go off the top of my head But if I could pick books that I think everybody should read, it would definitely be Wide in the Window, which is Mm -hmm. an amazing book. The Body Keeps the Score. I would read A Mind of Your Own by Kelly Brogan. Ellen Vora has a really good book coming out this month in March. 
that is, I don't know when this episode's coming out, but it came out or is coming out in March <laughs> and it's the anatomy of anxiety. She is fantastic. Um, and you know, which book I actually really like right now is the way of integrity by Martha Beck. Mm-hmm. And because I think a lot of people don't recognize that anxiety can come from being out of alignment with your inner truth. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, the inside of you is screaming, saying you are so out of alignment and it's presenting as anxiety and they're not recognizing it. So if you want to go down like that path, that's a really good book too. Podcasts, I don't really have, like, I, I don't have a specific podcast. I think I'm just so much in research that I don't really listen to podcasts as often as I'd like. But I'd probably say those are my big things. And then mm-hmm. obviously I'm starting the somatic experiencing program. Yeah, I I love all those. And I think there's a lot of different places where people can start and kind of broaden their their scope of what they're trying, what they're implementing and and what could be the right fit for them. So I think that's huge. Where can listeners find you and connect with you and continue to consume your work? So I am the I'm mostly on Instagram at courageously dot just the letter U. So courageously dot U. I have a podcast. Uh, it's the courageously U podcast. That's pretty much where I'm at. I don't have the bandwidth to be anywhere else, but people can connect with me there. I did want to give one more resource that I forgot yeah. about that I think everybody should check out. It's the website Madden America. It is okay. a fantastic resource for people. So I would definitely check that out. Awesome. Well, all of the the books and and podcasts and website and your podcast um, will be linked in the show notes so people can check those out. But thank you so much for joining me, Tara. I know this episode is going to be so helpful for so many people and just really gives a very new perspective on anxiety and, and treatment and hearing it from the like the therapist side of things. Because obviously I went through the experience of being in and out of the hospital and then doing more of the like integrative healing approach as I got less from the residential side of things. And so it's really interesting to hear your perspective and kind of paint a full picture. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a blast. Of course. To recap this episode, Tara and I talked all about anxiety. We did a deep dive into causes and triggers. We talked about misconceptions in society about anxiety. We talked about the pros and cons of overdiagnosing and pathologizing anxiety presentations. We talked about all of Tara's favorite recommendations, whether it's therapy modalities, books, different things that she implements in her practice, coping skills she recommends when you're experiencing anxiety, and so much more. If you enjoyed this week's episode, make sure to leave a review, share it with a friend or family member, and if you share it on Instagram, tag me at at ShePersistedPodcast, and I'll make sure to repost and give you a little shout out. So with that, I will see you next week.